Our passage for this morning is from Genesis 2, 4 through 15. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But the mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there, it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bdellium and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again to everyone. Uh, Well, this morning, uh, as many of you are aware and uh, acknowledging why I am uh, leading worship and also preaching this morning with you all, uh, because we received the news earlier this week uh, that uh, Jason's father passed away on Tuesday night and uh, or Monday night. Sorry if I'm mixing up the days, Uh, but that is uh, the reason this morning that uh, things look a little bit different. Things aren't necessarily according to plan, but uh, rarely are they in this life, uh, what we expect always that they will be and how we think that they will or should go. Uh, and so this morning, you know, as we discuss this uh, idea of this Advent season being a time that we hold uh, contentions in reality, contentions of uh, hope and glory and eager expectation alongside suffering uh, and sorrow that meets us with uh, kind of a, in a pointed way uh, here this morning as we uh, mourn along with uh, Jason and his family, the loss of his father. And so uh, I wanted to open our time this morning just by praying for them. There's a funeral today for his father where they'll lay him to rest and uh, thank God for the hope that he has in Jesus. And uh, we believe, uh, add it to the list of expectations that uh, they will rejoice with him again one day uh, with a glorified body. And so uh, let's pray for them this morning, pray for their family and this time. Uh, Father, we acknowledge as your people here this morning these contentions that we've been putting before you all morning, um, and that meets us in a uh, particular way here uh, as we uh, grieve along with Jason, the loss of his father, and along with the Hudson family as they uh, just navigate the <clears throat> just the, the sorrow and sense of pain of loss uh, that comes along with that. Uh, father, you tell us that uh, you are the God of all peace and comfort, and we ask that you 
uh, would prove yourself to be so in a very particular, very visible way in this time for Jason and for his family. And we just ask that uh, you would give them amidst their grieving and amidst the sorrow, uh, this sense of hope that we know is there. Father, I pray that it would uh, burst forth with clarity in this time for them and for their family. Uh, be with them as they travel. Be with them as they uh, work through the plans that they have made to uh, lay his father to rest. And just pray that you would be uh, honored by their time, that you would be near to your people. Uh, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, first a joke and then an observation. Uh, the joke that I thought of this week is uh, Jason and I were batting back and forth funny things that uh, theologians and scholars have said about uh, the place that they lived, that they loved, and how much it was like heaven. And uh, he sent me one that uh, was, I'm trying to remember now who it was, but uh, it said that he thought of uh, heaven as a Kentucky of a place. And uh, I thought as we were reading this passage just now, I remembered a joke that I was going to make to the few people who are fans of Onyx Coffee in Northwest Arkansas, that really Onyx was there, and that's why it was such a great place, meaning that Northwest Arkansas is really heaven on earth. But uh, we can agree to disagree and argue after the gathering, if you would like. Uh, but uh, as we were texting back and forth, Jason sent me a, uh, uh, a message, something that his mom said to him that I thought was, uh, was a helpful observation for this Advent season and maybe a helpful approach for us. Uh, he said this is the most theologically profound thing his mom had ever said to him. Uh, she said, this isn't what it's supposed to be, but it is. That's her observation about recent events in their lives. It isn't what it's supposed to be, but it is. And I think that's an apt description this morning of the tension that we acknowledge during Advent. That as we step into anticipation, hopeful expectation of Jesus's arrival, we're reminded that we do surely live in this time between the times where we inhabit this fallen world and exist amidst all of its brokenness and pain and suffering and death and loss. But we do so strangely in a hope that one day he will return again to make all things right. That's a tension for us for this Advent season. Uh, and as we come to this time together, as we uh, come to this four weeks that we have leading up to uh, Christmas Day, uh, we're partnering with, uh, with our friends at Missio Day to kind of hopefully take a fresh look uh, at this Advent Christmas story that we've heard many, many times. Uh, they are uh, in their 13th Advent season. We're in our first, so maybe there's a little bit more of a desire for creativity from them than there is for us. Uh, everything's new and fresh when we're doing it for the first time, maybe for us as a church. Uh, but for centuries... Uh, as a church, we have focused during this Advent season on this idea of Jesus's arrival. When God took on flesh, Emmanuel lived and breathed and walked among us. It's a time to remember that just as we wait for the second of coming, second coming of Jesus, when he will come back and make all things right, when he will rule and reign on earth with his people forever, just as we await that arrival and anticipate that with eager expectation, uh, God's people in the first century waited for the Messiah who was to come according to their scriptures as well. Uh, they looked ahead and awaited, wondering, is this the Messiah? Uh, the Gospels record for us several times, uh, people questioning, are you Elijah who was to come? Are you the Messiah, son of God? Are you this person that our scriptures say is coming, this rescuer, this redeemer, this deliverer that our hope and expectation is set in? 
And as they're thinking, if you can just place yourself in the shoes of somebody in the first century, which, which shouldn't be too hard, especially for uh, us melancholy types uh, who are all about eagerness and expectation of the goodness that is ahead, uh, maybe you can place yourself there in the waiting and expectation and in the wondering. As they were waiting for this Messiah, this deliverer, this Savior who was to come. And then suddenly, one day, without warning, at just the right time, Galatians says in chapter 4, a baby was born to a virgin girl named Mary. And there in this barn, surrounded by animals, swaddled up in a feeding trough, was the Son of God, the Messiah for whom and by whom all things were created. Colossians 1.16 tells us. As we enter this Advent season, we do so uh, in a time and in an age with all sorts of mixed uh, kind of cultural symbols and practices from uh, lit up Christmas trees to Bing Crosby Christmas, or maybe more uh, accurately for us this morning uh, with some Elvis Presley Christmas playing there behind us. Uh, maybe it's peppermint lattes or Will Ferrell in yellow tights in the movie Elf. Uh, and it's fine that we have all of these cultural practices and symbols and things that uh, mark this Advent season and mark this time of anticipation leading up for Christmas. But uh, we have to keep in mind that this liturgical season, which is intentional and by design, calls us to not lose sight of this one day when this paradigm-altering, history-shaping thing happened. And that's the reason that we have to celebrate at all. That's that one day God was born to a woman. His lungs sucked in air, just as your lungs suck in air. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and dwelled among real people in a real time and in a real place. While people were buying and selling and eating and drinking, scheming and worrying, weeping and rejoicing. And while none but a few shepherds and astrologers took notice, God arrived. And they called his name Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Uh, as not anticipated, and very few would come to understand his arrival, the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, was the really the beginning of God's uh, cosmic reconciliation progress. That is his work to restore peace, love, joy, and hope that God created his world in and created us to live in, but had been fractured because of the curse of sin. So what we want to do in this Advent season is to look at Eden as a picture of the peace, hope, love, and joy that God created us to experience in his presence and with purpose. Uh, one of my favorite lines uh, about biblical theology is that eschatology is protology, uh, not proctology, which is what autocorrect always wants to make it say, totally different things. But eschatology, the things that are to come, is protology, the things that were in the beginning, proto-beginning. In other words, what, we, what will be is what was in some sense. We can look to Eden and what we see in this creation story of Genesis to see what God created in order to anticipate what he plans to restore among us. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of take this theme of hope, uh, but assign it onto uh, something very particular, and that's this. The arrival of Jesus gives us hope that God will save us from our place of exile and bring us back to our place of dwelling with him. I'll say that again. The arrival of Jesus gives us hope that God will save us from our place of exile and bring us back to our place of dwelling with him. So I just want to look at a few things in this Genesis story this morning and then point to a couple of points of application. Uh, the first one is this, that we were created for place. 
In Genesis 2 verse 8, it says, uh, Now the Lord planted a garden in the east, uh, in the east, in Eden, and there he put man he had the man he had formed. Uh, the creation story reveals to us that God was not aloof or some uh, some being who was distant from his creation. He didn't set some subatomic particles into motion with a loud bang just to sit back and observe what happened throughout all of the course of history and even human history. No, Genesis 2 shows us that after he formed man in his image intimately, and intentionally, personally, after he formed man and woman in his image, God planted a garden, a place for them to dwell in. If you think about this idea of planting, and that's the language that it says that God used, there's so many different languages that we see in the Old Testament about God's creation, about him speaking or breathing. But here in Genesis 2, it uses the word planting. If you planted a garden before, which I know many of you have, you're better gardeners than myself. Uh, Our best gardener is not here at the moment. Uh, But uh, if you think about planting, it is intimate, deliberate work where you get your hands, get on your hands and knees and, and work with your hands, the soil, cultivating this environment for your plants to grow and flourish. And verse nine tells us that that is what God was doing for his creation and doing for his people. He was making a place for them to dwell personally and intentionally with them in mind. And verse nine tells us that it wasn't, uh, that the garden, the garden of Eden, Eden was actually a beautiful sight to behold. And it was good for food, it says. And what that means is that God's creation wasn't just functional for our survival. It was made to interact with the fullness of our senses. You see, God's creation, the place that he made for us to dwell, was perfectly attuned to the perception of beauty and goodness that he had formed and created in each one of us. He made us to love where he made us to dwell. He put brilliant color in his creation that he made our eyes as miraculous as they are to see. He made pleasing sounds that he expertly tuned our ears to enjoy. He gave us foods that awaken joy in our taste buds with complexity and craft. He made the garden for us and us for the garden. God was forming for us in his creation a place where he made mankind to dwell. Uh, earlier this year, are there any handy people in the in the room like to be handy, claim to be handy? Mike had saw the shelf back in the kids' area, so at least he's handy. Um, I consider myself sort of a handy person, or at least more confident than I should be. Uh, that's what I usually say. And uh, I set out to create my son, Ben, uh, my older boy, a uh, playhouse because he is uh, energetic. Uh, that's the kind way of saying it, that he's crazy. Uh, and he's always looking to burn off some energy, or at least we're looking for him to burn off some en- ener- energy. So we created this playhouse, something that was uh, for him to go outside, even in the midst of the bitter cold, and uh, burn off some energy and have some fun. And I didn't want to do any of the like prefab systems. Not only are they expensive, but that's just lame, right? Like you're gonna do the, you're gonna buy the set and assemble it together and follow the. 480 step instructions to put this together. No, I wanted to build it uh, myself. And so I started to uh, buy the components and buy the pieces. And I found that as I was doing that, I was making decisions with him in mind. I was thinking he likes the slides that go like this. He likes the swings that are flat, that he can sit on his stomach and swing back and forth. But sometimes he wants to switch it up and go on the other swings and do the normal red swing as well at our house. 
Uh, he loves to climb. And so we've not only put a ladder going up the back of it, but we also put this rock wall because he's just fascinated with a rock wall. He'll climb up it sideways and upside down and every which way that he can imagine. On the top of it, we put this wheel so that he can loudly sing to our neighbors, wheels on the bus go round and round. And the, even though we couldn't find a horn to put on the bus, we did find a metal cowbell that we installed as well. So he clings that and wakes up all the neighbors as well, lest they thought they could get any work done or get any sleep in. Uh, but my point in saying that is that as I was creating this playhouse for my son, I did it with him in mind because I know him. I made sure it was something that he would enjoy. I made it a place that would be suitable for him, that he would, all, with all of his senses, would take delight in and enjoy. <clears throat> you see, friends, I want us to see this morning in this, in this story of Eden, an echo of heaven, that God created us, as Andy Crouch says, as mind, body, soul complexes meant to resonate with Eden, that we were made to connect with, to enjoy, and where we were made to feel a sense of belonging, a place that God created to be our home. That's true for us. When we read these stories about this place, we're not just like, oh, that sounds like a simpler time. I want to belong there. Or that just sounds like an easier way of living rather than having to go to a job to eat, to buy food to eat and get bacon on things. We just went and got it from the trees. It was there. God made this perfect, easy life for us. And then we complicated. It's not just meant to show us that, that maybe there's some practical things that we can change to connect with nature more. That's not the message. No, there's something more fundamental that built into us is a longing for a place that God perfectly made for us to dwell in and that's good it's a picture for us to hold on to but we know that the story didn't stop there unfortunately uh, we live in a world post eden you see the second thing that we know from the story of genesis this creation story is that not only were we created for place we were exiled from place we know that the consequence of sin is that this resonance that we were created to experience with God's creation and for our home and dwelling place was disrupted. When Adam and Eve sinned, uh, they were literally and physically sent out east of the Garden of Eden, spiritually marking the fate of all mankind to live in this tension of longing for what was lost in Eden as we make our homes east of Eden. That, that physical reality is true for us spiritually, whether we or anyone else that was made in God's image recognizes it or not, the consequence of sin is that we feel estranged from place. We feel like we don't belong, like something isn't right. It's the reason that built into every human heart is a fundamental longing for some place that we can belong to, even if we do not know what that place is and cannot express it with our words. It's the reasons that, that we have that nagging sense and feeling of unrest that C.S. Lewis figured must be because we were created for another world. It's the reason that the Jesuit priest Carl Rayner said that in this life, we always have this feeling that all of our symphonies remain unfinished. It's the reason that we live in this longing and it's because we live in exile from place. Instead of feeling a deep sense of resonance with place, we often feel at odds with our place. And this is evidence and evident in how we experience God's creation. Idyllic landscapes have mosquitoes. A nice, enjoyable day at the beach includes sunburns and sand in your toes. Maybe you enjoy that. I do not. Maybe I just realized that probably sounded more positive for some of you. Sounds very negative to me. I hate that feeling. Uh, but everyone hates salt water up their nose. 
Our work is painful and laborious. Our bodies develop cancer. Our food poisons us. The place we live attacks us. We get the feeling that we just don't fit. All of these things form in us this sense of longing, this feeling that we are in the wilderness looking for at home and wondering if God will ever help us to find it. Now, of course, we know the good news that could only be anticipated uh, in this time of this Genesis creation story is that God has restored us to our place. God has restored us to our place. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel Gabriel uh, comes to Joseph in a dream. By the way, I always I read that story and my dad sent me this meme of like a biblically accurate angel. Like if you actually followed like eyes on its wings and things like that, how terrifying of a sight that this must have been. And it's funny, we're just like angel with wings and heart appeared to Joseph and told him this. Uh, but really this crazy thing happened when all of a sudden uh, he's a, a, awakened to see the angel Gabriel and he says a curious thing to Joseph. Uh, he tells him about his betrothed Mary that she will give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus because he will save people from their sins. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, what the significance of that is. Uh, normally we don't name people and say, I named him Cameron because he has a crooked nose, which is what that means. And I do, all of you do too. Everybody's nose is a little crooked. But Jesus's name was not random. Gabriel tells Joseph, something that was maybe more meaningful to him than it is to our ears, that Jesus' name says something about the work that he came to accomplish. You see, Jesus literally means Yahweh saves, but it is also the name Joshua, who you might remember from the Old Testament. He was the one that God used to save or deliver Israel from their wandering in the wilderness into the promised land where they were meant to dwell with God and experience his blessing. Jesus takes that name and steps into that function that Joshua points ahead to. This work that would be fulfilled and more fully seen in Jesus is that, in other words, just like Jesus, Joshua, who came before him, was uh, sent to rescue and deliver God's people from their place of exile for the place that God made for them to dwell. You see, friends, the good news is that we are restored again in Jesus through our deliverer to the place that God has created us for. And that sounds like good news. And that's hope that we can hold on to. But you know that it's maybe not that simple, right? We've been acknowledging all this morning that uh, we live in this kind of contention in this, in which these two realities kind of simultaneously exist. You see, even though many Jews in the first century would have expected uh, an, an earthly Messiah, a political Messiah, Savior to come and overthrow uh, the, the Roman Empire and deliver them safely into this uh, land of blessing, this kingdom of God here on earth, even though they were expecting a Messiah to re-deliver them to this so-called prom promised land uh, where they felt the sense of exile from, uh, Jesus, we see in the New Testament, does not deliver or promise us an earthly city. You see, in this already but not yet reality, we still exist as exiles, sojourners and strangers, it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, in this life. While we wait for the city that God is preparing for us, we do so as people who do not belong in the home and in the place in which we dwell. 
And friends, I want us just to see this morning that contention is true, that God, our deliverer, has come in flesh and he is bringing us and restoring the sense of place, that he is righting the wrongs and fixing the brokenness that make us feel at odds with his sense of place and make us feel at odds with his home in which we dwell. But we do so in this contention. But even though we do so in this contention, knowing that the world is still fallen and it is still surely passing away, I want us to see this morning and hope in this truth that our restoration to place, to a dwelling home that God has intended for us is not just a future hope, but a present reality for the people of God. It might not look like a garden, It might not look like what we expected, but it is not just something set into the future that we eagerly await for. It's something that we see and experience here and now. You see, God's word tells us that he is establishing his presence among a people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. First Peter chapter two says that God is building together among us as his church, a temple built out of living stones. And so what that means is that God is building and creating a place here among us as his church, that he is, he is bringing and ushering his kingdom in through the reign, not through some political power or authority and not through the establishment of a nation, but through the rule and reign of the kingdom of Christ in the hearts of his people. God is establishing and preparing a place for us now. Friends, what I want us to see and understand and grab onto this morning is that as we await the city, we do so as the city the people of God, fellow citizens and saints where God has established his presence and is working out his purposes and place among us, a place among whom his people where the truth and justice and mercy, the beauty, love and goodness of God reigns, where we seek his kingdom come and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, I want us to see that God is restoring his place, our place among us now as he prepares us for a place where we will dwell forever as fellow citizens and saints with him. And so what do we do with this reality? We look at this spiritual reality that God is kind of restoring this sense of place and giving us the sense of renewed purpose in him as we eagerly await the city that is to come, but recognize that he is calling us to live as citizens, this outpost of heaven on earth, this outpost of his kingdom in the here. And now what do we do with this contention? How can we live into this reality knowing that it will continue to be a contention for the rest of our lives? I have a couple of things for us. One is this. Since the arrival of Jesus is the restoration of place for his people, we should have hope in the midst of our exile. Many things that remind us in this world, uh, many, or many things in this world, the broken things of this life remind us of what uh, Meister Eckhart once said, God is at home and we are in the far country. Uh, we get the sense of that all the time in grief and suffering and loss in the face of injustice that God is the one who is at home. And remember friends that we are the ones in the far country, but 
Because God is at home and we are in the far country, we know through the lens of Jesus and the work that he came to do and his deliverance of his people from this place of exile to a place of dwelling that he is making and shaping a home for us personally and intentionally with us in mind, that he is forming in us hearts and a readiness to embody and dwell in that city now and forevermore. Even as we exist here in the far country amidst the brokenness and amidst the grief and all of these things, We do so with this ultimate hope of restoration that he is coming to make all things new. If we don't, we lose heart. But if we look ahead to what is eternal, to what is true, to these realities that exist beyond our world, we might see and taste the moments when they intersect and collide with our reality and see that God is forming in us a place for us to dwell, a place for him to dwell and for his presence to be among us as people and among us as his church as we eagerly await his city, his citizens for the city that he makes us to dwell. Because Jesus is our deliverer, we have hope in the midst of our exile. Uh, The second thing is that because Jesus is delivering us to a redeemed place, we can pursue beauty and goodness in our place. Where we are right now, we can pursue beauty and goodness. Uh, When Emmanuel walked among us, he signaled to us that the physical creation matters to God. If you want to just kind of look at more broadly biblical theology uh, as a whole. This is my favorite line, by the way. I'm summing up the Bible in five words. I think this is original to me. If not, I'm going to hold on to it. This is my summary of the Bible. The garden becomes a city. It doesn't go away. God doesn't look at his creation and destroy it. God doesn't wipe away and just wipe the slate clean and say, I'm done with this. I'm done with my design. I made a mistake from the beginning. No, he takes the garden, which was lost and which was fallen and which was fractured, which was poisoned, which was tainted by the curse of sin. And he doesn't wipe it away. Instead, he makes it into a city, the dwelling place of the most high God, where his presence is with his people forever. God is making the garden into a city. When he came among us and preached this message of the arrival of God's kingdom, he points to something future, yes, where it will happen once and forevermore, but he points to something present, that his kingdom has arrived here among us, that he is working back already the curse and effect of sin, that he is working back already the brokenness and fracturing of his creation, that he is restoring in us a sense of place and renewed presence and purpose with him. He is doing that work right now as he prepares a place where he will do that once and for all now and forevermore when the new Jerusalem sets down not up in the sky but here on earth friends remember that as we seek God's kingdom come and will being done we do so longing for us for us to see here among us what is on earth to be done according to what it is in heaven what that means is that we as his people pursue the justice and love in mercy, the truth, the goodness of our heavenly city. We long to see an outpost of the kingdom, an outpost of heaven be made real and tangible here among us. You see, I I said a couple of things that we should pursue beauty and goodness in our place. I'm not just saying those things randomly. Those are the things that uh, God said about the garden, that it was not only a sight to behold, but it was good, not just functional for us. It was good for us and good for our bodies. Uh, The pursuit and creation of beauty in this space is not a waste of time. 
Just because this world is old and passing away doesn't mean that we dispense with creation. No, God's presence here among us as Emmanuel dwelling here with us and his establishment of the new Jerusalem here and forevermore means that he intends to redeem this place even if the things of old will pass away. And what that means is that we can pursue the beauty of the Lord here among us. You see, we were made as creative, expressive beings with our art and work rooted in this sense of transcendent beauty that God has woven into the tapestry of his creation. We aren't made for this McDonaldized world where everything is standardized, cold, and calculated, but instead our souls long for that which is otherworldly. We long to see and taste the transcendent beauty of God in the things that we do and the things that we create, and that is not without value, even if this world has fallen and even if this world is old and passing away. I think part of seeking the kingdom of God and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven is to pursue things simply because they are good and look like heaven here among us. That is not a hopeless case, but also to pursue the goodness of the Lord. You see, our vision for goodness in this life is that we might be able to, as Jesus prayed, carry out the will of God on earth as it is in heaven, being faithful to seek and to walk in the goodness that Jesus calls us to. This sounds like a really revolutionary idea for a church to do, even though it sounds most similar to what the church was called to do in the New Testament. But we rarely see here among us that we would feed the hungry, clothe the naked, help the sick, care for the orphan and the widow, that we would pursue the welfare of the city, that in its welfare we might find welfare, as it says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, that we seek and long for and create and pursue the goodness of the Lord here and among us, here and now, because Jesus, our deliverer, has come and he is forming us for a place and forming a place for us, we can live and work and pursue and create according to the beauty and goodness of God, this vision that we have to see his kingdom here and now among us in its rule and in its reign and in its glory. Uh, Those are just things for us to meditate on this morning as we hold on to these ideas. These aren't fully thought out, really pointed applications that I'd say, this is exactly what I think that the writer of Genesis meant for us to see uh, as as, uh, 21st century Christians. But I think that it's things that are true for us here now, that in the midst of this hopeless and dark place that where we know that the light has come and he is shining light into darkness and he will cast out the darkness once and forevermore, I at least believe that that means that we can seek his kingdom come and his will being done on earth as in heaven. I at least believe that that means that we can hope in the work that he will surely finish. That's true for us now and true for us this morning. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he uh, took the bread and broke it saying, this is my body broken for you and took the cup of the covenant and said, this is my blood shed for you. Uh, The apostle Paul instructs us that as often as we gather, we are to eat this meal and drink this drink, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. You see, friends, this morning as we gather in this Advent season, we are recognizing that this deliverance that we talk about, this hope that we have was not without cost. Emmanuel came and walked among us, but he tells Peter that his kingdom is coming not by the sword and said he died to the sword, so to speak. He was put to death on the cross for uh, sins that he did not commit. 
sins that he uh, was obedient unto the death for, uh, for our sake and on our behalf. He went to the cross and paid the ultimate penalty for you and I that we might be forgiven of the sin, forgiven of the brokenness that we cause and cultivate because of our own wicked heart and because of our own wicked intentions. He came to pay the price for us that this reconciliation might be possible with God, that this hope of goodness and truth and beauty in this life, this hope of the things to come might be possible because of the costly price that he paid. And so friends, as we gather this this season, this Advent season, and on this morning, we do so remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again, because it's only in his death that we find life, hope, joy, peace, and the satisfaction of what we long for. And so this morning, uh, in just a moment, I'll pray, and then our volunteers will come up and hold the elements. Uh, you are free to take the time that you need, uh, but then come up and take of the elements, and then you can return to your seats and remain standing for another song of worship. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning holding these contentions before you that you have created us for a place, cast out because of our sin. We are, apart from you, broken, hopeless, without cause. But Father, you have rescued us and redeemed your people. You have delivered us from our place of exile and made your home and dwelling place here among us in our hearts. And that is a foretaste, your word says, of what is to come. Where your presence will flow among us like mighty streams. As the psalmist prays, there is a river whose, whose presence makes glad or whose streams make glad the city of God. Father, we look ahead to this reality of, of the time in which your presence and your purpose and your glory will be evident and tangible and present among us in a way that we could not ask for or could not even fathom in the here and now because we see this world broken and marked by sin. But Father, in the midst of that, awaken our eyes to your beauty. Awaken our eyes to your glory. Help us to hope in things more glorious than we have ever seen and could imagine. Help us to love and long for what you have attuned our hearts and our souls to love and long for. And Father, may we wait for it with patience and diligence. Seeking here and now, not waiting for your kingdom come and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we desire to see heaven on earth. We know it's merely a foretaste. We know it's nothing that will compare. But we want to see that insofar as we are walking according to your purposes, walking in your will, walking in your goodness and truth and pursuing beauty here among us. We want to see echoes and a foretaste of heaven here among your people now as we eagerly await what is to come. New Jerusalem, the city that you will set down and establish here among us forever, a place that we arrive at the end of this immigration through life, this journey through the far country, where we arrive as citizens in the home that you have made for us. Restore in us hope, God. Restore in us peace and joy and longing. Help us to find satisfaction in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.